You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Romans chapter 8. Life in the Spirit. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in the body God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature but instead follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now we call Him Abba Father. For His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are His children, we are His heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in His glory, we must also share His suffering. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, As Sarah said, my name is Jimmy. I'm a pastor here. And um, I have have to be honest with you. um, I say every time that I ever get to preach that I'm excited. I'm excited to preach. It's, an, it's a privilege and an honor. I'm uh, especially excited this morning. This is peak excitement because without any exaggeration, um, <clears throat> Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Right? I'm not saying that there aren't other great things in the Bible, that God, the, the, the Word of God isn't breathed out by God and, and useful. I'm just saying that this is the greatest chapter. Right? And here's why. I want to invoke the 10 minutes before death rule right, to sort things out. Right? If you're 10 minutes before death, you're 10 minutes before you're passing away, you're dying, and you need to hear something about Christianity, you need to hear something about Jesus, you need to learn about who God is, you're probably not going to read the first couple of chapters of Lamentations or Song of Songs. 
right? Just, just, being, just being honest, right? There's just some things that you're not going to be able to learn about God from reading Israel groaning about God or Solomon writing erotic poetry, right, to his future wife, right? Man, married men, like, write, go, go to some of the songs, like, write stuff down, super useful in marriage, right? You describe your wife's teeth like the shorn sheep of Gilead, right? Every time, right? right? But there's just some things about God that you're not going to be able to get from it, right? There's some things in Romans 8 that are infinitely precious for us to understand, for us to experience, and for us to know. And that's why I'm excited this morning. That's why it's the greatest chapter in the Bible, right? Personally, Romans 8 has been such a gospel antidote for me when I've been depressed, when I've been discouraged, when I've been despondent. It's Romans 8 that time and time again that has been an encouragement to me and my faith. It's because there's so much in there. Right? If you want to know who God is, read Romans chapter 8. If you want to understand the gospel and all the implications for us, read Romans chapter 8. If you want to understand what it is to live life in the Spirit, read Romans chapter 8. If you want to understand what it looks like to put sin to death and to move on from your former ways, read Romans chapter 8. If you want to understand your adoption in Christ, read Romans chapter 8. If you're suffering and trying to work out what, what is God doing, read Romans chapter 8. If you're wondering can, if God is going to leave me alone, no, 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 read Romans chapter 8. It ends with, it starts with no condemnation for those who are in Christ and it ends with no separation for those who are in Christ. It's precious. It's why uh, German pietist Philip Spina, he said that if the Bible is a ring and Romans, one of its most precious jewels, then Romans chapter 8 is the shiniest part of this precious, precious jewel. Now, if you were here last week, you would have heard the intense, open-heart surgery look at the Christian from Romans chapter 7. The Christian who knows about their forgiveness in Christ, who knows that they've been set free from sin and the law and death, but is struggling with the frustrating reality of sin in their life. Well, Romans 8 is the very same Christian who is experiencing and utilizing the freedom they have in Christ to put sin to death understanding who they are in him it's this beautiful look and so i want to pray for us that we would experience the same freedom that the romans 8 christian has so let me pray for us if you want to bow your heads father i pray that for those who are here this morning discouraged that you would encourage them in your word that you would set our mind on christ and the things of the spirit that we would not be distracted, but we would know the precious truths within, that we would be able to wield them like a sword, cutting off sin and running the race towards you. I pray this through the Spirit and to the glory of God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's begin. Friends, make sure you've got a Bible. Like, there's just, I, I, I'm all for technology, all for phones, all for that good stuff, right? Have a paper Bible, right? It's just better, right? Just objectively better to have something in front of you you can touch and feel. It reminds us that this faith is real. Grab a hold of one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the essence of of Christianity. 
This is the gospel that we proclaim from door to door, from house to house, from family to family. This is the very core of every single thing that a Christian holds to, that in the gospel that what Jesus has done for us is that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it's important that we get this. He's not just saying that there's no condemnation for the Christian. He's saying that the category of condemnation is gone forever. It's not that Christians are protected for a moment and then slowly but surely the condemnation will return. What he's saying is that condemnation once and for all eternally is done for the Christian. There is no condemnation. It's the scandal of grace that God has so completely secured us, saved us, adopted us, that condemnation can never call home at our houses anymore. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. It is gone. And this is, we need to, to know this. Martin Lloyd-Jones has this great quote. He says this, most of our troubles as Christians come due to our failure to realize the truthfulness of this verse. Because most Christians will say, yeah, I agree with Romans 8 verse 1, there's no condemnation. But we live our lives as if God might one day reverse his decision and reintroduce condemnation. Right? And so we carry around this guilt and this shame on our backs and we drive ourselves to death to prove to God that maybe if he withdraws his grace towards us, then we'll earn this salvation. We, know, we, know we can't earn it right now, but maybe in the future when God's condemnation returns. And what it leads to is this lack of joy in our prayer lives, a lack of joy and intimacy in our worship because we're fearful of what might happen if condemnation returns because we know who we are. We know that condemnation should return, Right? If God was just, right? but it's not. For all those who are in Christ, condemnation will never return. God will never, never introduce condemnation for the Christian, ever. Guilt and shame has been dealt with forever. Now, if you forget every single word from every single sentence I say from now on, right, doesn't matter. Right? If you remember that in Christ there is no condemnation, you have an infinitely precious treasure and an infinitely practical treasure. See, most of us struggle to believe this in the everyday practicalities of our lives. And so when we get sick, right, and not just like the flu for a season, right, but ongoing long-term health and sickness, right, when it feels like that Death is closer than health will be for long-term chronic illness. And the accuser comes and says, you know God's sovereign. You know God's in control. You're sick because God wants it. Right? This is God's judgment against you. This is God's condemnation. Right? The Christian can say, no! There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is not God's judgment against me. It's not his condemnation against me. For the family... Right? Who's struggling, who's fracturing, who's just breaking apart at the seams for the father who's struggling to be a provider, for the mom who's struggling in her role as, as mother to these kids. Right? And you feel like if, if people just saw who I was at home, right? when I dropped the facade and I am for who I am, they would never accept me. God, God wouldn't accept me. No. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
for the person who's struggling again and again with sexual sin. Right? It says, I've got the Holy Spirit inside of me. How can I come back to this place again? Right? Surely I can't be inside God's family. Surely God's going to condemn me for this. No, there is no condemnation for the Christian whatsoever eternally. Right? There's nothing. It's gone. I'm repeating myself because I need you to get this. This is so important. And why is there no condemnation? Well, verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation because Christ Jesus has set us free from condemnation. Right? And how has he set us free? Verse 3 and 4. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. We are free from condemnation because Christ has set us free and Christ has set us free by his blood on the cross. Every single drop of condemnation that was reserved as God's just judgment against sin, against evil, not out there but in us was poured out on Christ. There is not one single morsel of condemnation left over for the Christian because Christ has received it all. Christ has stood in our place, receiving God's full punishment against sin and wickedness and evil. And so the Christian can say there's no condemnation because Christ was condemned on my behalf. But I want you to notice something in verse 1 particularly. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let us not just assume that we are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing more important for us to know that if we actually want to receive these benefits, if we want to receive the fact that there's no condemnation, if we want to receive the fact that we've been set free from the law and sin, then we need to know, are we in Christ Jesus? John Calvin had this quote. He says that so long as Christ remains outside of us, everything that he has accomplished for us remains useless and of no value to us. If you are in Christ, Christ has been condemned on your behalf. But if you are not in Christ, you stand separated from him. Christ has not died on your behalf. There is condemnation for you because God's justice against evil remains. If you're in Christ, what happened to him has happened to you. But if you're not, you're separated from him. So it's an important question before we go on to the benefits of being in Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you in him or outside of him? Are you under condemnation or outside? Now, it's important. There is infinite room in Christ. This is not a crowded space. Right? Every single person who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and will be in Christ. But don't go around just assuming that you're a Christian because your parents are, assuming you're one because you go to church, assuming you're one because you know your Bible. You either believe in Christ or you don't. 
We either believe in Christ and are in Him or not. So this morning, check yourself. Do I trust Jesus to save me from my sins? Is this just a cultural thing that I'm doing? Is this just a family trait or habit that I've picked up? Or is this something that I love and cherish? We go on, verses 5 to 8. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Paul sets up this juxtaposition, this comparison between those who are in the realm of the flesh and those who are in the realm of the Spirit. Let me just define things for us. When he's talking about the realm of the flesh, he's not talking about this kind of thing. right? He's not talking about this fleshy outer layer that we hang around on our skeletons. He's talking about our bodies... Right? who are satisfied and enslaved to sin. The parts of us that want sin and evil more than they want God. Right? And when he's talking about the spirit, pneuma, right, he's not talking about the highest part of ourselves in the sense that body, spirit, and soul. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He's saying you either belong to one of them. No third category. We are either in the realm of the flesh or in the realm of the spirit. And what, what categorizes, what, what, what descriptors can we see for, for what's what? We says this describes the realm of the flesh. Right? They have their mind set on what the flesh desires. The mind is governed by death. The mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law cannot please God. And the, the thing is, like, we could look at this and go, oh man, that's, that's pretty full on. This describes every single person who is not in Christ. There is not some third category of person in between in the flesh and in Christ who sort of somehow, you know, they're not, not super hostile to God. They're just a bit, everyone is hostile to God if they're not in Christ. And what describes the realm of the Spirit? They have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. They have their mind governed by life and peace. Right? They submit to God's law and they please God. Like I said, there's no third category. There's no person who's just having an emotional experience in life and just, just cursing God and this is who that's describing. It's describing everyone. It's describing the person who says, I don't want what God wants. I won't submit to God's law. I won't submit to God's rule. I will do whatever I want to do. Right? And that describes everyone, not in Christ. Because what do we learn in Romans 1? Romans 3. Romans 1. Everyone suppresses the truth about God. Romans 3. No one desires God. You cannot please God if you're suppressing the truth about Him and do not desire Him. That's describing everyone who's not a Christian, right? We need to be aware of our spiritual state before God. We are either in the realm of the flesh or in the realm of the spirit. We're not playing games here. It says, set your mind on the things of the spirit. What does that mean? I think it means that he's talking about being absorbed and captivated by the things of God. Martin Luther said it like this. That whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your 
God. And I think he's saying it because there's a part of us that just responds to the things of the Spirit if we have the Spirit inside of us, right? Whatever it is that we're absorbed by, that we're captivated by, that we're consumed by, it's important. This is what the Spirit does. It brings this about in us. And we go on, verses 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the realm of this flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Us. This is an important word for our church, right? We love knowing about God. We love the word. We love getting into the text. We love reading our theologians. We love reading our dead old guys. But the kind of church that we are that loves these things can often be a little bit funny when it comes to the things of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit comes and it just gets a little bit crazy. And we're like, well, I, I, let, me, let me do what I control. I can, I can read this, right? Let me be very clear. There is not only no growth in the Christian faith outside of the Holy Spirit, there is no faith without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not some extra thing tacked on for the seriously spiritually minded Christian. It is an essential part of the Christian faith. Either you have the Holy Spirit and are part of Christ, or you do not have the Holy Spirit and are not part of Christ. There is not some kind of thing where, you know, a little bit, a couple of months, a couple of years down the line, you might have an experience where the Holy Spirit comes in once you've sort of progressed to a certain point in your Christian faith. There is no progression. If you have the Holy Spirit and a part of Christ or not. And it's important for our church, these things that we love and cherish, like being in the Word, like belonging to His body, like singing songs and praying, right? They are great, wonderful Christian things that without the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, they do nothing to grow us. Right? The Holy Spirit is in every Christian, glorifying God and making us more like Jesus. It is the hallmark. And I want to point one thing out. Now, I'll, be, I'll just be honest with you. I'd love to spend hours in Romans 8. Right? We could just like, drill down, get into the Greek. Right? We don't have time, but there's just so much. So here's my advice. Go home, meditate on this, dwell on this, think on this, imbibe it. Here's one thing I want to point out from this. He says that the same Spirit, verse 11, that raised Jesus from the dead is living in us. So often we come to church feeling frustrated, feeling fallen, feeling defeated. Right? And God's saying that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. Right? And what's the purpose? Right? Verse 11, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. The Spirit is the one who energizes us and gives us faith, gives us strength, gives us endurance. So don't lose heart, right? The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. And if He raised Christ from the dead, what incredible things can He do in us? Right? Don't lose sight of this. Verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. We have a new obligation for the Christian who has been set free from the power of the law and of sin and of death. 
For the Christian in whom there is no condemnation. For the Christian in whom now is in the realm of the Spirit, we have a new obligation to live according to the Spirit. Right? And what is our obligation to the flesh? It is nothing but unbridled violence against the realm of the flesh. Let me read this quote from Ed Welsh from his book, A Banquet in the Grave. It says, There is a mean streak to authentic self-control. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude towards out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. There is a mean streak at the very heart of Christianity. There is a violence at the heart of Christian living. Is it a violence against other people? No, it is a violence against every single impulse in us that would do violence to other people. It is a mean streak against every impulse in us that would capitulate into the things of the flesh. It is a mean streak against every impulse to lie and to cheat, right? to succumb to sexual sin and to greed and envy and jealousy and despair and hopelessness and fear and worry and anxiety. It is a mean streak. Christianity is not the kind of faith where you settle into your armchair and live at peace with the world. Christianity is the kind of religion where you put your sin to death and live. This is what it looks like. 2003, there were performers called Siegfried and Roy in Las Vegas. And they had a performing magic and animal show, exotic animals. And they had, I, I just can't, I can't make this up, right? You can look it up for yourself, it's like, it just blows your mind. They had a, a performing white tiger whose name was Manticore, right? Just incredible, like, that's what I want, right? Anyway, so... There's this performing white tiger in their show that's been performing for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of a show, the tiger stops responding to commands and requests from Siegfried and Roy. And so what does Roy do? He grabs the microphone and does what he's done a thousand times. He bops it on the nose. And in a moment's notice, the tiger has his jaws around Roy's head, dragging him around the stage, cutting up and devouring his body. Roy Roy survived, but he needed brain surgery to survive, never went back to performing, right? And we look at that and we go, what an idiot. What an imbecile, assaulting a tiger. Like, what do you think you're doing, Roy? What do you think is going to happen to it? And yet we stand here in church calmly cuddling our sin, thinking it won't devour us. Sin is far more dangerous than a white tiger called manticore. Its whole purpose is to kill you and destroy you. And yet we stand here going, it's not too bad. I don't need to deal with this yet. John Owen, he wrote a book in 1628 called The Mortification of Sin. And it's one of the classic Christian texts. If you want to learn about how to put sin to death, right? read Mortification of Sin. It's 80 pages, might take you six months, worth it. Here's one of the things he says. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. 
Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to its head. Every rise of lust, might it have its course, would come to the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. Sin will never be satisfied until you are dead and buried in the ground and separated from God. Do not make peace with your sin. Verse 13 goes on to say, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. What is he talking about? The ancients had this word called mortification. It's the same word for putting to death the deeds of the flesh, right? What it means is that we look at our sin and we pull it out and we look at it and we see it for all of its evil and all of its just death and decay that it's doing in us and we put it to death. Right? There's no humane, vegan, gluten-free term for it. Right? Put it to death. Cut it off. Gouge it out. Suffocate it and strangle it and cast it out. There is no easy living when it comes to sin for the Christian. We put it to death. It is not an optional extra. What does it say? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you put by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. The deeds of the body. Here's what he's saying. Paul is not saying that if you succumb to the deeds of the flesh, that you will be cast out of the kingdom. He's not saying that if you fall to the flesh, that you will no longer be a Christian and that you will now come under God's condemnation, right? We know that everyone who's in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation. What I think he is saying is that Sin in our lives, succumbing to the flesh, it does not separate us from God, but it does kill us. That's what sin does. Right? It hardens our hearts towards the things of God. It hardens our hearts towards listening to the Spirit. It hardens our hearts towards the people of God. And if it has its way, it will kill us as Christians. John Owen again says this in Mortification of Sin. The choicest believers... Now get this verse. Not verse, sentence who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin, so that if you're a believer, you're freed from the condemning power of sin, will make it their life mission to put sin to death. The vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. This is so important. The choicest believers will put sin to death. The health and vibrancy and comfort of their faith depends on it. Not saying we'll be cast out, not saying we'll be condemned, but what's the opposite of health? What's the opposite of vibrancy? What's the other of comfort? That will be your lot as a Christian if you do not put these things to death. So how do we kill sin? How do we cast it out? How do we gouge it out? How do we be serious about putting these things to death? This is not an easy battle. This is a life or death wrestle. 
Well, the first thing is that it goes on and on and on about setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. That's what differentiates us from those who are in the realm of the flesh. So what are the things of the Spirit, the things of God, the things that God has accomplished in us? Well, it says again and again and again in Romans chapter 8 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Something has happened to us. If you want to put your sin to death, you need to know who you are and whose you are. You need to know your identity has shifted from death to life. You need to know that you've been adopted into the family of God. You need to know that there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's the fuel for our sin-killing efforts, right? It's not done out of fear. It's not done because God might condemn us if we don't. It's done because this is who we are. Sanctification, like our growth in the faith, comes from our security in Christ. We are secure in Christ, in Him, no condemnation, in the realm of the Spirit, and it gives us fuel to live out the Christian life. It is not the other way around. We don't live out the Christian life, make all of life all about Jesus, and put sin to death, and that gives us assurance. We are assured because of everything that Christ has done, everything that He is, everything He will do, and therefore we go out to live this Christian life. Important distinction. Right? So what do we do when we're dwelling on that? I'm not condemned in Christ. I'm in Him, no condemnation. Well, let us go to Ephesians chapter 6. It says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So just we keep it there, but like, just, just well on that. This is not like you know, the kind of wrestle that happens between brothers who just like, you know, really love each other but just want to wrestle, right? No, this is the kind of life or death struggle that Paul is describing in Romans 8. Right? Next verse. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done so, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. What is there in this? Well, if we're to put the deeds of the flesh to death by the Spirit, what stands out to us from Ephesians 6? Well, we go back one slide. Verse 17. What does it say? Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. The sword is an offensive weapon. The sword is the thing that you put to death things with. You don't put things to death with the shield, right? You defend yourself with the shield. You put things to death with the sword. And what kind of sword? It's the sword of the Spirit, right? We're putting things to death by the Spirit. We need to take hold of the sword of the Spirit. That's our offensive weapon. And what is the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God. Right? This is the sword of the Spirit. If you want to put to death the deeds of the flesh, then you need to know and memorize and wield this like a sword and putting to death every impulse and thought in us that directs us away from God. Right? We put to death the deeds of the flesh by believing God. Right? 
It's the same way that we get saved. How are you saved? Because someone once said to you that if you call upon the Lord, right, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Someone said that and you said, Amen, Lord, I believe, I trust you. I believe these words to be true words and I trust you, I'm in. I'm in Christ because if I call upon your name, I'll be saved. And so how do we progress in the Christian faith? We do the same thing. We believe the words of God. We believe what he says about how we interact with the world, what he says about who we are in Christ. And we don't believe the words of the accuser. We don't believe the words of those who are outside. We're not like Job, whose friends come along and say all these terrible things about God. Job says, no, 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 this is who God is. That's us. This is what it looks like. When I was a younger Christian studying out of my faith, I had a terrible struggle against all kinds of sexual sin, right? Lusting after women, pornography, the whole 10 yards, right? And it felt like less of a struggle and more like a capitulation, right? Week after week, I'd come back to this place where I'm thinking, how can I be back here again, right? I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, and I've got the spirit inside of me, but I'm just back in this place again like a dog returning to his vomit. Right? And so I did what every young male does who finds these struggles. Right? I didn't tell anyone else. I just, you know, like, I can do better. I'll do better this week. I'll do better next week. I'll do better the week after. And what I would find is that week by week by week, I would not do better. In fact, I'd be sat back same, at the same place. Right? I wasn't confessing my sin to my spiritual elders. I wasn't talking about it. Right? I wasn't confessing it to God. I was just going, I'm going to do this on my own because right? that's what I want to do. I had pride. Right? And the biggest thing that changed my perspective in my battle for sin is reading the Word of God and seeing how that applies to my life. I read 1 Corinthians 10.13. so important. It says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Right? So first thing, what am I reading? It's not not uncommon. Right? So if it's not uncommon, other people have to be struggling with this. So if other people are struggling with this, then I can go to other people and talk to them. Right? I wanted to believe that when James says in James 5 that everyone who confesses their sin to one another will be healed. So I'm like, okay, I've got to get some elders around me. I've got to get some wise men around me who've struggled with this. Right? So I started confessing my sin to them. Right? And then I read, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. I'm like, okay, well, I know already that I don't have the strength within myself, but it says God is faithful and God lives inside of me, so the Holy Spirit is actually going to help me in this warfare so that when these thoughts come into my head, I don't have to just capitulate. I know that God lives in me and is going to help me. Right? So suddenly I'm not alone in this battle. Right? And then what does it say at the end? When you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so that you can endure it. So I'm looking for all these way outs of these situations. When I'm home alone, right? I'm going for a run. Right? I'm getting rid of stuff on my phone. Right? For a while, I was the only person who didn't have Facebook or Instagram or all these other things that access stuff that just wasn't helpful for me. Right? It was God's way out. And so I trusted what he said, and by God's grace, like I have put to death these sins, right? Not saying that this sin doesn't come up and tempt me again and again. Earlier this week, right? Preparing this sermon, right? Home alone, eight hours. Right? This thought comes into my head. No, like no one would know. Church isn't going to know. Sarah's not going to know. Right? Who, would, who would find out, right? That is sin tempting me to die. I can say no. 
I texted some people, right? And I got out of the house. It's like, I'm just going to flee. I'm just going to get out of this, right? Because I know that God provides a way out. I don't have to succumb to this again. That's how we put to death our sin. We believe God's words more than the words of the accuser in our mind, more than our own sinful flesh. Right? We set our minds on the things of the Spirit. So for the person who's struggling with fear, right? constantly afraid of what people think of them, constantly struggling with what people might say if they found out these things, what do we, what do we read? In Isaiah 41, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. When we fear things, we forget that the God of the universe who created all things, who created the mountains and the seas and the stars, is with us. Who do we have to be afraid of? Right? And so we take that fear, and day by day, and week by week, and year by year, we put it to death because we trust God's word more than the words of our feelings and our emotions and our anxieties. Right? And so we come to something like worry, worrying that God's not going to provide for me, worrying that God's not going to be able to do all these things, and we get to something like John 14. Right? And it says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives, do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. And we say, okay, so Jesus himself has given me a peace that surpasses everything, right? Not like the world gives, right? So do not be afraid. So I go, okay, Jesus himself has given me something, so I don't need to worry about this, right? He's in control. And when it comes, what about, what about frustration? What about doubt? Right? When you come to those situations, it feels like God's not moving, He's not working, right? And you're just like, how on earth can this turn around? We come to something like this in Mark. And Jesus says, I looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And so we keep persevering, we keep moving forward, we keep making all of life all about Jesus and putting to death these seeds of fear and frustration because we trust that God's word is true. We believe the words of God, that with God all things are possible. Right? And what about something like sexual temptation, like what I, what I was talking about earlier? Well, we, we want to hear something like 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 where Paul says that, right, this is the will of God. I don't have that on the screen. I only added it this morning, right? This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you flee from sexual immorality. So we go, okay, this is the will of God, right? The will of God is that I be sanctified, and I'm going to be sanctified by fleeing from sexual immorality. So God himself desires it. I know in Philippians it says that God will finish what he started in us. So if God is finishing what he started in us, he's desiring my sanctification, I'm going to work with him. I'm not going to succumb to this. I don't need to stay here anymore. I can flee because God himself is on my side and helping me. I'm believing the words of God more than everything else, everything that distracts me and diverts me away from God. That's how you put to death the deeds of the flesh. Don't live at peace with your sin. Put it to death by trusting God more than your sin. Don't live at peace. Verse 14 and 17. This is so this is so key. I wish like I said this in the morning, but I just wish I had like hours to go through Romans 8. Like it's just so good. Like this three verses, that should be like a three hour sermon. We're going to have like 10 minutes. 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and daughtership. 
And by him we cry, Abba, meaning Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, that we are heirs. Oh, sorry, that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Here's why it's important. When you are in the middle of the battle, when you're in the middle of putting to death the deeds of the flesh, when you're in the middle of mortifying sin, do not forget that your identity as a Christian is not in your sin killing. Your identity is in being an adopted son and daughter of the king, right? Unchanging, eternal. Because here's what happens, right? For the Christian, there will come moments when you have glorious victories over your sin, when you're putting it to death and it feels like you have mastery over it, don't trust your identity in that, right? It's the Spirit who works in you, right? Because there will be moments when sin seems to get the upper hand in this wrestle, right? When you're wielding the sword and you're wielding the, 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 the shield, but it feels like sin has got a blow against you. And if you put your trust in your identity, in how well you're doing in fighting sin, then there will come a moment when you're not doing so well and you will feel condemned, you will feel shame. You will feel guilt. You will feel like hiding from God and feel like being distant from God. Right? Don't trust it. Your identity is an adopted son and daughter of God in whom there is no condemnation, in whom the Spirit dwells in. This is an unchanging reality about every single Christian. It is blood-bought Right? Jesus has rescued you, ransomed you, set you free, delivered you from death to life, adopted us into the family of God, and this cannot change. Put your identity there. Right? As Christians, our security in Christ fuels our sanctification. Right? Knowing who we are gives us the fuel and the desire and the drive to put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's not the other way around. We don't come to church swaggering because I did well in my sin killing this week. Right? And I don't come to church with my head defeated because I performed poorly in my swaggering this week. Right? My value as a son of God does not come from killing this sin. My value as a daughter of God does not come from putting to death the deeds of the flesh. My value comes from being in Christ, in whom there is no condemnation, who has adopted me into his family. Right? There is rest there, there is security there, there is assurance there. So let us live like that. We have been adopted and we can rest knowing who we are. Right? Yes, put to death your sin. Do not live at peace, but remember in all of the battles who you represent, who you are, whose you are. Let me pray for us. Father, this is such a precious truth for us. It is precious knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It is precious knowing that we have been transferred from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit. It is precious knowing that you have given us a new obligation, a new mission. It is precious knowing that you've adopted us as sons and daughters of the King, that we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Let us not make this an abstract experiment in theology. Let us 
live out this reality. Let this be our experience. Let us be a church who knows without a shadow of a doubt that we are set free from the power of sin, from the power of the law, from the power of death, and now there is no condemnation, not once, not for next week, but eternally. Let us be the kind of church that knows that we have gone from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit. Let us be the kind of church that sets its mind on the things of the spirit. Let us be the kind of church that puts to death its sin, that does not live peaceably with our wickedness and our evil, but instead by the Spirit picks up the sword and wields it, knowing God's Word and believing it. And let us live our lives knowing that we are God's children. That when all seems hopeless, when all seems dreary, we can cry out, Abba, Father, and He will remind us, My son died for you. You're part of my family. This cannot change. I love you. Let us pray this prayer with the Spirit filling us. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen.